I want to open up, and I just want to ask you a question of what do you hope to get out of church? Just take a few seconds and and think about that question and and maybe try to derive an answer in your head. What do you hope to get out of church? Because I I think when we, we gather together as Christians, we take some time out of our weekends, every single weekend, and we devote time to Jesus. And I, and I think that's a, in, in some worlds, can be looked at as kind of a huge sacrifice. I know that not every single one of us makes it to church every single weekend. As a matter of fact, as statistics show, we are making less and less weekends a year. Uh, they say the average attendee is making between one and two every uh, services every five to six weeks. And so if you look at that math, uh, the average attendee might only be at church maybe, you know, 10, 15 times a, a year. But what I'm hoping for is that uh, as, as, a, as a body of believers, as a congregation, we're, we're trying to get above and beyond that. And so we're trying to make, you know, two-thirds, about 34, 35, six, uh, 36 weekends a year. And, and if you look at that number, you say, man, I'm going to be 35 to 36 weekends a year. That is a sacrifice of your time. It it really is, because there's a lot of things you could be doing. There's a lot of lakes to be uh, swam in, a lot of oceans and beaches to be sat on in this world. But yet, as Christians, as Christ followers, we decide to take time out of our weekends and come here for an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours if you put the whole commuting thing into it, in this time. That's what we sacrifice. And my question is, what do you hope to get out of it? When you come hear a sermon, what do you hope to hear from a sermon? Do you hope to be challenged? And when you leave this room, you're going, man, I, I, you know, I, I've got some things in my life that I, I need to work on. Or, or do you hope to maybe hear one of those sermons that just makes you feel good? You know, you just kind of walk out going, yeah, right? You know, kind of skipping out the aisle like, man, I got this thing going on. What do we expect? What do we hope to get out of our gathering time here on a Sunday morning? A few weeks ago, um, the Next Generation team here from the church was able to go to a conference in Orlando, Florida, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I went to this conference, I've been to this conference for about three or four years now, and every year I've gone to the conference, it's been really great, but this past year, I was just kind of, I was really just going because it's a great time to get out from the normal work week, and they give us a free ticket to Universal Studios, so there's that, uh, but we get to go to this conference, and I really wasn't expecting to hear much. From the Lord, I was really just kind of going, um, to, just to kind of get away. And, and as I arrived that first morning, and, and the sessions began to to happen, God hit me with a bomb of truth. He he hit me kind of over the head with just several things in my life that I, I needed to repent of. I needed to put my heart into, and I, and I needed to stop running from Him. And I can remember that the first guy gets up and he, he preaches his sermon and he's talking about how about 70% of high school graduates are not going to church from the ages of 18 to 23. 70%. Now here I'm sitting in a room full of youth pastors. I'm sitting there with Ben, our next generation pastor. I, I lead our youth here. I've been a youth pastor. And I go... Man, we're doing a great job. I mean, this is just awesome. I'm sinking 
every minute I'm sinking further and further down in my chair. And I, and I just really get to this point of going, man, what? What am I even doing? What? We're not even making a dent in some of these kids' lives. And it's just one of those moments where you go, okay, all right. And then the next guy comes up, and he must have known me specifically. And he was actually thinking about me when he wrote his sermon, because every single time he would deliver a one-liner, it was like a haymaker to the face. It, it was just, it was a killer. He, he, he made statements like this. When you build ministries around your own strengths and charisma, you are building God's house on a foundation of sand. He goes on to say, transparency is integrity on display. And then the last one, we, we talk about it here a lot, but I think sometimes when you, when you hear it from someone else and maybe God just speaks to you in a very different way, in a different context, he says the very strengths that God has gifted you with can become the same weaknesses that lead to your moral and ethical failure. I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I don't regularly pray for my strengths. I rest on my strengths. I regularly pray for God to improve my weaknesses. But if we look through Scripture and we see stories of David and, and some of these other great biblical characters, and we go, man, they rested on their strengths, and those same strengths are the things that led to their downfall. I go, man, I really... I need to thank the Lord for my strengths, and I need to be on guard because that same thing that he gave me is the same thing that Satan is trying to prowl and use against me. And, and, and I, at this moment, I'm done. I'm just like, all right, God, we're good. I got the message. I appreciate it. Guard my heart. Make sure I'm doing everything above reproach. And not that I'm not, by the way, congregate. It just isn't like me coming out, you know, and saying something crazy, but there are things in our life where we go, man, I'm just, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, and I'm done. And then the third guy gets up. And uh, it's the last speaker of the day before we get to go ride some roller coasters, so my mind is there, right? My mind is, you know, screaming, going up and down, it's going to be awesome. And he stands up and he says, today I want to talk about our ego problem as leaders. And so I grabbed my group, I stand up and said, we got to go. <laughs> I didn't really do that, but in that moment, I, I, I go, man, really, God, there was a softer way to deliver this blow. You, you just, you, you hit me really hard, and through the Holy Spirit and the sermons, I, I left that conference feeling like I just got out of a heavyweight fight feeling like God just laid everything that I do wrong on my chest and said, bow down and repent. I'm not standing here in front of you this morning saying that I've got everything fixed or that I've got everything figured out. I'm standing here this morning kind of as a leader asking for repentance and asking for your forgiveness. Because as a leader, I need to be a humble person. I need to be a guy who's not big-chested and, and has this ego and has all of these things. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But what I learned through this is that what God really wants from our hearts, what God really wants from us, is to be expectant to hear from Him. To be 
longing to hear the words of our Father. And so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and the passage that we're going to look at today is the account of a man who sought after Jesus, but he was not fully expecting or even ready for the words that he was going to hear from him. And so as we unpack this, there's going to be some truths in there for every single one of us in this room, no matter where you're from, no matter if you're, you're new on this faith journey, or maybe you're, you're not a Christ follower at all. Maybe you just rolled in here on a Sunday morning because a friend invited you, or you saw something on social media, whatever. There's going to be something in this text for every single one of us. And what I hope that we can do is that we can lean in, and at the end of it, we can all say with pure hearts, saying that, God, I'm ready to hear from you. So John chapter 3, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm not going to put the main text up on the the screen. And my reason for that is because I want you to turn through there with me. Maybe it's through your Bible app on your phone, or maybe it's through an actual, you know, Bible. But I'm not going to put the main text up there. I'm still going to be reading. I'll be reading from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. But I'm doing this just to kind of challenge you to bring your Bibles and be here with us. And so... Uh, As you're turning there, I want to kind of set up this passage. So in the book of John, right before this passage, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, uh, Jesus, if you were to summarize what's going on here, basically a lot of people said they believed in Jesus, but in actuality, they didn't. They really believed in his signs and his wonders, and they loved those things. And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't actually love me. You just want all of the stuff that comes with me. And that passage leads us directly into this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. John chapter 3, it says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to, be, uh, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says back to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And if you know it, you can say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Good job, church. For God God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through this passage and kind of break down the truth for us. So I want to start off, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is this Pharisee, he's a wealthy man. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, which means he was kind of part of the the local judge system a little bit. Nicodemus would have been extremely intelligent and very well versed in Scripture. He would have been raised in the church. He would have been a Jew of the Jews, as Paul says in different parts of Scripture. And in John chapter 3, verse 1, we see Nicodemus going to Jesus at night. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over the past, you know, 2,000 years of what this at night means. It could mean a bunch of things. It could mean, you know, maybe he, he, he was a little ashamed, possibly. Maybe he didn't want to have a bunch of people around him having this conversation because at this point, Jesus was super popular. And so when he goes to, to Nicodemus, uh, or when Nicodemus goes to Jesus during the day, if he would have done this, there would have been crowds of people all around him and, and a personal conversation probably wouldn't have been able to happen. But he goes to him at night to have this personal conversation. And whatever the reason behind Nicodemus going to do this, we know one thing for sure. Nicodemus was extremely curious about this man named Jesus. There was no doubt about that at all. That We we can see in Scripture that Nicodemus had kind of like this this itch that he just had to scratch in going to talk to Jesus. Verse 2, he goes to him, and what does he call Jesus? A teacher from God. A teacher come from God. And and Jesus didn't really go to rabbinical school. He didn't have any formal training. He didn't go to seminary and and get all his, you know, doctorate stuff and wear a a cool little tie. No, Jesus was just Jesus. But yet Nicodemus goes to him and gives him a ton of respect by saying, teacher who come from God. And what I think is interesting is that Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He gives him this, this, this clause, teacher. And how does Jesus respond to him? Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't really answer Nicodemus' question. Nicodemus is basically saying, man, you are, you're something special. And Jesus goes, man, if you can't tell what I am, you, you got no chance. I'm not even going to go into all that of who I am because you don't even recognize how special this moment is. You don't even recognize how special this conversation is. And Jesus brings up this idea of born again, this this term that we call in, in theology called regeneration. It's basically the idea that God makes you a new creation. When you've repented and put your faith in Jesus, he's regenerated you. He's made you a born again believer. And he brings up this thing, and it says those people who have not repented from sin, they can't even see the kingdom of God. If you haven't repented of sin and put your faith in Jesus, you don't even, you don't even see the kingdom of God is what Jesus says. You, you, we're talking about earth and all, and all these things about the wind. You can't even recognize the spiritual stuff because you don't even understand when I make comments about the wind. You don't even understand that. How can you ever understand things of the Spirit? Paul says it like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what's very important here is to remember back to the person of Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? He is a dude who should recognize the things of God. Remember, he's gone through the training. He was raised in the church. He was an amazing Jew. He was a very wealthy guy. He had all the education you could have about these things. He would have known Old Testament passages that talk about being born again, like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. But yet, he has no clue what Jesus is talking about. Whoa, i got to be born again. Like, How do I go back into my mom's womb? And, and we can tell from this conversation that Nicodemus is utterly confused of what Jesus is talking about. And that brings me to kind of like this first idea that it's not about where you come from or your knowledge. It's about your heart. It's not about the way you were raised. It's not about the things that you learned. It's about your heart. There are a lot of people in this world who know a lot of things. They could get into a theological argument with me, and they would blow me out of the water. And they may not be following Jesus. Their heart may not be in a place of surrender to him. They may have a lot of knowledge. They may know a lot of things about history and about the world and about law and about Jesus. They've never come to a place of repentance and faith in him. And this is what we can see in Nicodemus, is that Nicodemus knows a lot. But when Jesus starts having a conversation with him, Nicodemus doesn't even know what's going on because his heart's hardened, his heart's closed off to this. He's not expecting to hear the words that he's hearing. Continue on, verse 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And there's two things that I want us to look at when it comes to this idea of belief. There are really just two things that I need us to understand. And I think the first one is that belief in Jesus shapes everything in our lives. Belief in Jesus shapes everything in our lives. Notice I didn't say should shape. I didn't say would or could. Belief in Jesus shapes everything in our lives. We, we've been discussing with the students the Ten Commandments. We've been going through each and every one with them. And, and the reason that we've done this this semester is because I, I want them to know how believing in Jesus will affect their lives and will affect their, their worldview. For, for example, we, we went over the, the uh, Eighth Commandment this past week, Thou shalt not steal. And, and so we started asking them questions like, hey, so when you get a job, or maybe you have a job now, if you're at work, you're on the clock, mostly you're probably an hourly employee in this case, but either way, you're on the clock, you're hanging out, you're at work, you whip out your phone, and you spend 10 minutes on Facebook. Is that a form of stealing? Or what about this? You're at school, you're going through your normal routine, and you're really just not taking school that seriously. You're just kind of going through the motions. You're looking forward to practice or class change to go see that boo of yours. And 
When we reflect back and think, well, how did you get to school? Well, let's see, somebody either paid your tuition or paid taxes for you to get there. So if you're slacking in school, is that a form of stealing? Well, what about the, uh, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill? Oh, that's pretty straightforward, right? Don't murder. It's actually two words. Don't murder, right? Well, what about, the, what, what, what about killing at war? Is that murder? Ooh, they start thinking, well, you know, uh, I don't know. What about manslaughter? Is that, is that murder? What about suicide? Is, is that murder? Or, or what about the death penalty? Are all these things murder or not murder? And they, they get to a place where I think if we're not careful, we can begin to let the world around us and the world around our children teach them what is righteous and unrighteous, as opposed to God who made it very clear in Scripture of this is righteousness and this is unrighteousness. See, when we let God be at the center of our life, He shapes everything. Our belief in Him shapes every single thing in our life. Micah chapter 6, God is speaking to the Israelite people. And at this point, they have betrayed Him a bunch, they've, they've forgotten Him a bunch, And he he wants to tell them that he's kind of still there, but he's really mad. Micah chapter 6, verse 3 says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer, Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I even sent before you great leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He basically says, look at all of the wonderful blessings that I've bestowed upon your life, and even still, your belief in me shows nothing. It shows that you continually turn from me and spit in my face. He goes on to say in verse 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? And to walk humbly with your God. I don't always love this next quote, but I think at its, at, its, at its pure intentions, at its most inner part, I think it means well. And it's a quote that's oftentimes attributed to a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, and it says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And, and, and I think if you look at that passage in Micah, What God is calling his people to do is not to live by the letter of the law, but to live by the heart of it. To say, how much do you love justice? How much do you look to to make sure justice in the world is functioning like it should be? Do you only love kindness when it's best for you? Are you walking humbly with me? John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think just like Nicodemus, sometimes 
many of us are resting in this idea that we come from a good background. We come from a great Christian home. Maybe we attended church most of our lives, and maybe we walked down an aisle at some point, and those things give us assurance of our salvation. God makes it very clear that His followers, His children, those who believe in Him, will bear much fruit. We cannot follow Christ. We cannot believe in Jesus without our works showing that we do. It's not that our our merit or our salvation is based off of those things. They're not. They are more so proof of those things. Belief in Jesus shapes every single thing in our lives. Second point. Other people's beliefs should be impacted by the way we model our beliefs. Other people's beliefs should be impacted by the way that we model our beliefs. Romans chapter 10, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he wants to tell them about sharing this good news. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The world around us needs to hear of this good news. And God has chosen you. And he has chosen me to take this message. He's given us all of the tools needed. For everyone underneath the sound of my voice, whether you came to faith in Jesus through a sermon, through a tract, through online, through a friend, through a parent, you know what? That same gospel that came to you is headed somewhere else through you. That's your calling. To receive this good news and then to carry it forward in our lives so that others could be impacted. He commissioned us to do this. Mark 16, Matthew 28. He gave us the tools, and he says, go and do this. As a matter of fact, he took the stress out of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I think when some, some of us in here may be introverts, may be shy, we may not think we have what it takes to share the good news of Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of confidence this morning. Let me give you a little bit of that feel good. As Christ followers, you and I are a part of an amazing design that doesn't rely on the effectiveness of your work. It relies on the effectiveness of the work of the cross by Jesus. He does call us to be obedient. It is not our performance that saves someone. It is our obedience that can lead to their salvation. And that is a great place to be. We get to be a part of someone else coming into eternity with Jesus for the rest of their lives. I mean, think about that. Think about how you can play a small part in the rest 
of their eternity. Not because you're some great person or because you're some great Christ follower. No, it's because you can get down on both knees and say, Jesus, I surrender and I'm going to submit my life to you. And in that, I'm going to walk in belief. I'm not going to walk that I'm going to get every word right. I'm not going to walk that I'm going to step every step right. No, I'm going to walk because you've already walked in front and won it. You get to do that. You and I. It's not about this sermon being amazing. That's not why I stand up. Every time I, I get up here to preach, I don't go, God, give me the exact words to make sure everyone loves me. No, I say, God, let me become less and you become more. Because when that happens, you know what's going to happen? Your lives, God's going to speak directly into them. My words don't do nothing. My words just fall. They, 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 they're going to go away. I'm going to go away at some point. But God's word is never ending. It is the breath of life. And we can live and function in that breath. Man, we need to be getting excited about that, church. That is a great thing for us to know and to believe and to rest our hope in. That it's not your work. It's not my work. It's not how good I am. It's how good and how great he is. Well, what do we know about Nicodemus? Nicodemus goes into this conversation that he was not prepared for. In thinking about Nicodemus' story and my life and, and where we are really as a, as a body of believers, I recently learned that I think the, the best way to have a, a tough conversation with someone, maybe a conversation that is going to deal with some criticism, Maybe a conversation that is going to confront some sin. I think the best way for that to happen is for that person to have a table and for them to have a seat for me at the table. Because if they don't have a seat for me at the table, what, what's going to happen is I'm going to walk up to their unwelcome table and I'm going to share some news that, although it's probably true, it's going to be really tough to hear and most likely... It's going to end in a disastrous situation. They're not going to be in a place to hear it because I just forced my way up to their table. Imagine someone coming to you on Thanksgiving dinner and just sits down and you're like, who the heck are you? You weren't invited? But what if you had already set the table? What if you already prepared a place for them to come and sit with you? I think when, when we can have that place, this is why it's so important for us and our conversation and our engagement and our idea to have that place for the Lord at our table. See, when I build a place for the Lord to come sit in my life, then I can receive His message with an open heart. I can receive His message and even more powerfully than just receiving it. Because I received it in a good place, I'm going to receive the power to go and live it out. But instead, sometimes we don't have a place for the Lord to sit at our table. And so he, he walks up to the table and he sits and he's unwelcome. And just like any good father does, he disciplines us in that moment. He gives us a hard sermon or sermons while we really just wanted to go to Universal Studios. He knocks us over the head and says, son, come back. Daughter, come back. Turn from that. 
we don't know much about Nicodemus' story. He's only mentioned two different times in Scripture other than this one. The last one, he's seen with Joseph of Arimathea burying the body of Jesus. And I, I would love to think, I would, I would hope to think that in that moment, Nicodemus prepared a table for the Lord. In that moment, that was his moment of acting out of belief, of saying, God, I know who you are. And there's a place for you at my table. And so this morning, I want to encourage us. I want to challenge us to ask the question of who is at your table. And is there an open spot for Jesus?